Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Dr. Jessica Revel. She is the author of Find Him Among the Living, which is a book about the suicide of her son, Gregory Chu. He has autism, and we're going to learn so much more about not only him, but of Dr. Revel's plight in bringing attention to how we handle suicide, how we talk about it, and how we treat people with autism in our community. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Revel. Yeah, please call me Jessica. Thank you, Leo. All right, Jessica. Um, so I'm so fascinated to have you on uh, for two reasons. One is usually when people are talking about suicide, they're talking about a friend, they're talking about it um, objectively, like they're talking about suicide in general. But here you are, a clinician, a doctor, and also the mother of your son, Gregory, who ended his life. And at what age was he? He was 25. He was 25. Now, when we talk about suicide and autism, what are some of the things that you were like, I need to write a book about this because we are not talking enough about this specific point or what are some of the things that came up for you? I think that there is a huge problem with autism and suicide that's really just coming into focus in the journal literature and in the wider culture. And I think that our understanding of autism and suicide is in its very infancy. I think the first article on autism and suicide came out in 2014. My son was born in 1995. And so the, the deeper understanding of a mental illness and autism has really not been investigated very thoroughly at all. And I have to tell you that despite the fact that I studied psychology myself, I'm not an expert in autism, but the references and the understanding of a disability as part of my formal training was very little. And it's also very small in the medical profession as well. And so it's not been inclusive. And I've learned so much. There seems to have been an explosion of talk about autism and mental health through things like TikTok and other social media. And people with lived experience are really adding to the discourse on autism and suicide. Yeah, it's interesting because there's so much talk about people on a spectrum. And when I think about being a human being, we're all on a spectrum of something to some extent. Um, when we talk about autism, before we get deeper into this, and specifically your son, how are we? How are you defining autism, and what were some of the signs and uh, characteristics that you saw in your son Gregory that let you know uh, that he had autism? Um, my son was born full term in Pasadena, California in 1995. And he was a happy, healthy baby. He needed to be held a lot. And that might have been an early indication of that kind of need for sensory input. And at about 18 months, he used to go into the bathroom and he used to turn on the faucet and watch a column of water for long periods of time. I now know that to be stimming. Um, he also was delayed with speech. 
physically, he didn't have sort of floppy muscles or anything like that. But as we progressed and I tried him out in several preschools, he um, he just wasn't progressing. And unfortunately, at a couple of the preschools, the people were quite cruel about it. And he got kicked out. Earlier, you mentioned that he was he would run the faucet. Yeah. And now you call it STEMI. Can you tell us what that is and define yeah. what that is? I've never heard that term before. Okay, cool. Um, people who have autism often have sensory and energetic levels that are very different from neurotypical people. And so often they feel like they have a lot of buzzy energy. Like if you had a lot of coffee, you might get that sensation that you had a lot of energy to get out, right? And so they do things like hand flap or rock or uh, repetitive actions to get that energy out. When Gregory was older, he used to come home from high school and he'd go into the yard and he would run left and right, facing forward, but he would run to the left and he would run to the right. He would run to the left and he would. So he'd been holding on to all that energy all day and had to get it out. Wow. And so the running side to side, the rocking back and forth, some of the repetitive uh, movements. It, I <laughs> There's two things that come to mind. One is on a personal level, I was diagnosed recently being somewhere on the very mild end of, uh, of autism. And I've noticed that at the end of the day, I have to go in my bathroom play music and dance and I'll dance and I might cry at the same time. Like I'll just jump up and, but I can only do it for like a song or two and then I take a shower and then I feel a reset and calm again. And I wonder if that was my version of, you know, walking side to side because it's something that I, I still do. And it just, it overwhelms me. Like it just overtakes me where I have to do this. And I also wonder if this is why sometimes people, sit in their car after being at work for a while. I mean, usually we call it stress, but it, you know, there's these different ways that it can show up in us, you know, this need to release the thing that we've been suppressing for the day. Absolutely. And I think that leads us to a, another topic, which is um, masking or camouflaging. So what happens with a lot of people on the spectrum is that they recognize their reactions and their behavior is different from allistic or neurotypical people. And so they learn very early on to suppress that in public. And when they get home, that's when they can act it out, dance it out, sing it out. Uh, one of the things in Gregory's later life that he did, which was so great for him, was he was super into hardcore music. And he used to go to gigs and like the dancing is really violent, isn't it? It's like really kind of thrashing around. And he also um, could do grit singing. So uh, I've got some great footage of him doing um, this thing where the, the main singer, the lead singer hands him the mic and he gets up on stage and he completes the song. And nobody taught him grit singing and nobody taught him the kind of stagecraft that he had because his slightly jerky autistic movements looked really perfect in a metal hardcore environment. It was, yeah, it was great. And those are one of the great sadnesses for me that he got so ill because I, I really saw greatness in my son. 
That's so interesting, that, that idea of this thing that in quote-unquote normal everyday society is perfectly placed on stage or uh, in performance. I think it's the singer, uh, she's so young, what's her name? She has... Billie uh, Eilish. Billie Eilish, and she has Tourette's. But she says when she sings, it disappears. That's and, right. And Gregory also had Tourette's. He developed Tourette's in, uh, in uh, adolescence and then eventually psychosis. He was just, um, it just seemed like bits were coming off him in the last few years of his life. It was just he got thing after thing after thing after thing. And it was very, very hard. But, yeah, that is true with Tourette's, um, that performance and singing can, you know, sideline it for a while. It's not gone. Right, right. I like that word sideline. Yeah, absolutely. The you said all right, so at 25 he ends his life, but those last few years there was thing after thing after thing. Um I know that for some people with autism, they might have gastrointestinal issues, they might have other health issues. What were those things that started to pile on besides you talked about Tourette's also? Hmm. I think that there were things that were seen and unseen. So the depression was eventually seen. It started in when he was about 13. But with a lot of mental illness, we get almost gaslit by the disease because it would rise up and then it would fall. It would fall away. And then we'd go, oh, thank God that's over. But it's just an episode. And I think the the mental illnesses often come in terms of episodes. But I think that his neurology was very affected by things like um, Tourette's. He started to regress and start to uh, become echolalic again, which is a kind of an aspect of a speech disorder in which you use the wrong pronoun or you echo what somebody just said, or he would almost like rehearse what he was about to say but not in his head, out loud. Early on, what were some of the steps that you, I'm sure you, you know, being a clinician, that you're you're probably throwing everything at him in terms of helping him to adapt and adjust. What were yeah. some of the things that you found to be effective in terms of what you were doing at home? And then also, I'm sure that you also worked with the school. What were some of those things that seemed to be effective? And what were some of the things that you were like, oh, that it doesn't work? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I have to give the United States a big thumbs up. My Both my children were born in America. And my husband and I are very proud that our children are American. And um, they regarded themselves as American all their lives. We have a daughter as well. She regards herself as an American who lives in Australia. Um, and America was that much more advanced. Remember, you've got a population of 331 million compared to Australia's entire population, which is about 24 million. And so 0.7% of the population is autistic. But in America, that's actually a, a, a larger number. And you have these phenomenal bodies like the Americans with Disabilities Association. So it's a very strong lobby. And when I started to notice differences with my son, I contacted Pasadena Unified, Pasadena Unified School District. And they sent a speech therapist around. 
And the speech therapist observed him in the yard and she said, he puzzles me. And then he went into the school district for further testing with uh, a district nurse and she diagnosed him with autism. It's interesting that his pediatrician didn't. Um, and at that point in California, what happens is that you have the care of a child with a disability in two wings. You have the school district, which takes care of the educational and um, regional center, which takes care of social emotional. And we got lots of funding. He was in a combination Head Start. So he was in a Head Start preschool, totally free. He had this blended inclusion, which is a level we don't have here in Australia, where you'll have, say, 15 regular ed kids and five kids with disabilities. And so the kids with disabilities benefit from the modeling of the kids who are neurotypical. Um, and it was great. We had speech therapy um, outside of school. We had speech therapy in school. He had occupational therapy. This was all free. And you don't think of America as sort of a socialist country. But in this respect, it was very, very good. And I think that the people that attended to my son um, knew the best that could be known at the time. Um, what isn't understood, and I think is only really starting to be understood, is that there's a political aspect to disability and there's a bias called ableism. So people who are neurotypical, people who are able-bodied, see their way of being as normal and other people's way of being as abnormal. And the notion is that we are benevolently reaching down to them so they can become like us. And I think there are some, in, in the extreme, very damaging therapies like applied behavior analysis. I'm not saying in totality it's awful, but the general drive of behavioral analysis is to try and get an autistic person to behave as a neurotypical person. Is that reasonable? Is that a global adjustment or is that an invasiveness so a person has to repress more, to mask more, to camouflage more? And what we really need to be understanding better is how to make global adjustments and how to see people with autism and other disabilities as a simply a flavor of humanity, not, you know, a divergence, um, not a, an aberration, let's say. I love that. And, and it's a beautiful way to look at all of us, because I think uh, so many of us uh, suffer in isolation and loneliness because we feel like we're the only ones or others have made us feel like we are other. Um, instead of a part of, and, and, you know, I love that recognition or that reframing of, we're just the flavor of humanity, right? We're, we're just, a, you know, we're a little cilantro, some parsley, maybe some sea salt. I don't know. Uh, well, you know, what would you want? Some hot sauce? <laughs> 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 we're just a flavor. We're just, we're, and, yeah. and all together, it's like, you don't want one flavor. You, you want a, a, a mix of flavors in your food, I, I would think. I I think we've been, you know, we're beginning to be successful with that, with, um, you know, race politics has changed very much. I moved to America as a child. My dad worked in the States in 1971 to 1976. Um, and you guys were so much further ahead than us um, in the early 70s. I mean, it was like four years after the Birmingham riots. 
And, you know, I went to school with uh, black people and Hispanic people. I'd never met these people before. And we were starting to move into, you know, political correctness. Um, and so that's waxed and waned, hasn't it? It's got better, it's got worse, it's got better, it's got worse. Gender politics as well, you know, understanding that gender can be fluid. So I think this is just another area in which we collectively have to understand better and understand the sensory and communication needs of people who are neurodivergent. Um, I've often thought that teaching sign language at school as everybody's second language would be a great thing because when somebody's overwhelmed, sometimes they shut down. I know that my son did that a lot. He would just not speak and I'd get frustrated because um, I'm trying to help. And I don't live in his world, so I don't fully understand him, but he doesn't live in mine. He's not working all the hours of the day and night and paying a mortgage and, you know, having to work to the clock. So it was really a poor intersection. Um, but I think for people who are overwhelmed, that if they can simply sign, make simple signs that are understood, emotional signs, I think that would be great. So people wouldn't interpret it as um, being difficult or sullen or, you know, all those projections we make when we have unsatisfactory communications. So we could better understand one another. Yeah, there's a lot of research that indicates that babies can learn sign language faster than they can learn verbal language. So it, it doesn't I don't understand why we're not teaching sign language as uh, the baseline language throughout the world. It just makes sense. And especially now with everybody walking around with headphones on. I mean, <laughs> we need a way of communication. Absolutely. And I think that it would um, really bridge some some gaps i know that you know i've got some clients who have panic attacks uh and they'd be falling apart in the supermarket um and the security cards will just come up and try and monster them out of there you're causing a disturbance now if people knew simple signs they would understand and that they would change their orientation to a support orientation rather than a control orientation there's a, a TV show called The Bear on FX, and uh, it's basically following this guy who's trying to start a restaurant. And, you know, it gets very heated in there, both physically and emotionally. And so when the when two people start arguing too much, they sign, I'm sorry to each other. And then I love you because, you know, when they reach that point where they recognize, like, you know, we don't know what else to say, but the signing is just a way of. Of, of meeting them halfway and, and letting them know. And then they're able to move forward from there. Uh, yeah. And I think kids would pick it up so quickly. And I think the fun thing about it is it's physical. Um, and, and I think kids would have fun with that. Yeah. We, we, you know, a lot of our society, you know, whether it's school or even work is all about constraining behavior and restraining and, and taming it. And, you know, everybody sitting in a chair all day and, raise your hand and ask to go to the bathroom. And, you know, instead of taking advantage of the fact that children, whether you're, you have autism or not, have a lot of energy and to give them these windows to express that besides recess, which we've taken away from a lot of kids. Yeah, it's torturous, isn't it? I remember actually with my, um, my daughter's elementary school, I came in and did like parent support on a Friday and there was this one kid called Tim and he was repeating 
um, kindergarten for a second time. And um, he was a big kid. And so I, I was helping him with his reading. And I wrote down the letters of the alphabet on palm cards. And we went out to the schoolyard and I gave him a letter and I said, run towards something that begins with that letter. And that was a great way for him to integrate learning. Some people are physical learners. I think, yeah, those early school years are particularly difficult for boys um, because they're, they're not great at sitting still. And look, I'm sure as a, a counsellor and myself as a psychologist, when you do professional development, you're stuck in a hotel, you know, conference centre, uh, look, looking at a PowerPoint and you want to stick a fork in your eye. Absolutely. <laughs> It's so funny because even in my relationship with my girlfriend, like my, I love to read and write and my girlfriend is very verbal. And I am always saying to her, if you want me to remember something, you have to text it to me. You have to email it to me or text it to me, but emailing is better or, you know, write it on a piece of paper. So now she's learning to write things down and leave it around. And I'm learning to verbally communicate with her more because that, is her language of learning. We talk about love language, but we don't really talk about communication language or learning language. Absolutely. Yeah, learning languages. And I think that we're just beginning to make global adjustments. We think of adjustments of things like ramps and rails, but for people who are neurodivergent, having quiet learning environments for some of them, for instance, and having um, the ability to go off into a separate room and jump around for a while to get out that energy that's built up over the stillness could be an enhancement to learning. I'll tell you what, just as a, I mean, I'm um, ADD and attentive, and sometimes I get into sensory overload when I've got too many like code switches when I'm, I'm having to do computer, then I'm having to talk to client, then I'm having to do a spreadsheet, then I'm, you know, and I get into sensory overload and I want to like install a smash room in my house. So I just have like some China and old electronics and a baseball bat. <laughs> I really enjoy that. Tell, tell me more about this because you, you said you have uh, ADHD or ADHD. Attention deficit inattentive, but I was born so long ago that wouldn't have been even a thing. I was just either lazy or a chatterbox or not that bright. That was the interpretation. So can you break that down for me a bit of attention deficit inattentive disorder? Because that's something one is not shared enough. And two, I could imagine because this is something that I've also realized with myself. Like I was just telling my girlfriend this this morning. I go, I can't stand interruptions. I can, if I'm doing a thing, I have to be able to do it. And I, I, you can't be like, hey, babe, would you like some? It drives me nuts. Oh. So I think we're on the same page here. Oh, yes. And when, especially when you're doing something that's stressful, like um, invoicing, I even have imaginary conversations with people who might interrupt me. I have like a Greek chorus in my head. Yeah, you're laughing. It's true, isn't it? I just get so, I, I get so rattled. Um, and yeah, I seem to, I have to be on one track or the, the other track. I have to do things in parallel. Uh, um, this, this multitasking thing, that just does my head in. Yeah, I, I almost, I recognize I need a day for a thing. Like, tell me what we're doing today and then I can focus. But if you ask me to do five things today, we're going to have trouble. I'm just going to curl up and shut down. 
Another thing they talk about in, with autism is what um, this was borrowed from, uh, uh, I think, uh, a neurological disability, but the, it's the notion of what they call spoon theory. And spoons are measures of energy. And imagine how many spoons you have in a day. Say you have eight spoons. Well, if I'm going to do stuff where I have to call um, the bank and the insurance company, I'm going to be in phone jail and they're going to ask me the 22-digit account number and I'm going to yell at them and say I have a name and a birth date. I can't remember 22 digits. And, you know, I don't want to go to my filing cabinet. I want them to do their job so I get incensed and angry. That's going to take six of my eight spoons. And, you know, the other two, I can walk the dog and then take a shower. I love that. Yeah, there, somebody mentioned, uh, they said parking spots. You only have so many parking spots in a day. And right now they're all full. <laughs> I think that, you know, it's not just for the neurodivergent. I think it's for everybody to understand that they have limits of energy. You don't just work like a Fiat factory robot and, you know, complete as many cars or washing machines or whatever you, you're making. You have to have pause in between. So when I'm seeing a new client for intake and I've, I've uh, moved a lot of my clinical work to suicide prevention, I see them for an hour and a half. And I have half an hour to write notes, but that's not enough because I need to upload forms. I need to put in an ele electronic version of an assessment that they have to do. And I'll, just for my own sanity, take the notes home and do it on the weekend uh, because it's just not good for my sanity to try and fit that all in. I need to be able to do it in a measured way and to do myself and the client justice. You said in a measured way. Can you say more about that when you say in a measured way? I just think increasingly workers are required to do more and more with less and less, less time, less pay. I don't think it's good for mental health. I don't think it's making us better to do things badly. So I take on two days a week suicide prevention and my other three days are in domestic violence. Um, but those clients get a lot more sessions. They get up to, this is actually quite a good thing in Australia. There's a domestic violence service that I work for and they initially get 22 free sessions. And so you can really kind of settle down at a different pace with these clients and kind of walk them through their recovery. Whereas the suicide prevention's about, they're on the boil and we're going to get them down to a simmer. Um, and they need to maybe after that pursue other sorts of interventions to keep them on track. When someone is, you said, on the boil, is that how you refer to them? Yeah. When someone is on a boil versus once you get them down to a simmer, what is the approach or ideology when um, talking to someone who's on the boil versus getting them on a simmer? What's the focus there at that at that moment, that at that acute yeah, I I try initially, although we have so much paperwork to get through, I try and keep that later in the appointment. I need for them to tell me the story. And the story may be a long story. You know, I might start back to something that happened when there were three, that a, a parent died or the parents divorced. Um, I think it's insensitive and rude with a person who is close to wanting to take their life to say, 
well, can you fill out these forms? They can fill out a few forms, but there's a, there's a narrative. There's a wonderful, you have such wonderful researchers in suicide prevention. Um, David Jobs, who's at the Catholic University of America in D.C., he's worked with these clinicians in Switzerland. It's called the Eschi Group. And they've been looking at ways to talk to people who are suicidal because the current medical approach is to effectively overpower the patient to you know, require that they say what they had for breakfast and how are they feeling now and um, are they going to kill themselves in 20 minutes? And, you know, they're not really listening. They're writing notes and they're covering their tail in case the person goes on to die. So the, the ESHI approach is about really sitting side by side and sometimes literally side by side with the client and listening to the story of how they came to die and to not contradict them. The Eshi group would never say to say to a client, you must not kill yourself. It's like a, a it's morally, a, it's wrong. They'll say, can we can we park that? Can we just defer that? Let's write a list together of the things that are really overwhelming you right now. Can we deal with n- number one? Can we just put your intention to die to one side for a bit, not taking it away from you, but just to work on problem number one and to see, you know, that steam release and the person not feel so on fire. On fire. That That's such a great way of describing it because when I think about the difference between my depressive spells and my suicidal spells, it's Depression just feels like this weighted blanket. It feels so like I can't move. Brushing my teeth is too much. I don't want to shave or shower. Where my suicidal spells are like, they either, I feel like one of two things actually. They either feel like I'm on fire or it feels like a tsunami of emotions. It's just like, like I just got caught up in this thing out of nowhere. And, uh, and I just kind of feel like hopeless or I, I, hopeless is not it's the also, word. But it's, it's helpless too. I think because having had depression myself, but I have what you would call a reactive depression, which was my circumstance. And I believe my son had an endogenous depression, which was uh, um, more neurologically, biologically rooted. But the, the phenomenon of depression is the same. It's this thing that comes and takes you over and stays as long as it wants. It's like you are a prisoner and it leaves whenever it wants. It's really random Um, and you don't seem to be able to find a formula to get it to leave. You don't have control. Your mind should be the safest place for you to be. And I'm grateful every day that my mind, you know, since maybe my 40s has become a safe place to be I don't wake up in the night and ruminate I might wake up in the night but I don't ruminate um for me it was like a metal helmet that was screwing tighter and tighter and I just couldn't take it off so it's it's very helpless and I think that one thing that people perhaps don't understand about suicide they're looking at from the perspective of a person of a person who's not depressed and doesn't have mental illness um or simply doesn't feel suicidal. And they try to silver lining it and say, but you have your health, you have a home to go to, you have a loving family. It's not about that. It is 
you know, uh, I, I talked to a Catholic priest who uh, is from uh, Canada, but he runs a, a seminary at uh, San Antonio. And he said, it's like those people in the Twin Towers, that were they going to burn or jump? Because living seemed like burning to death and jumping seemed the softer, softer option. And I think that people who are suicidal feel that way. Absolutely. And you said your, your son, Gregory, he experienced psychosis. Can you uh, say more yeah. about that? Um, he didn't officially get diagnosed with psychosis, but reading the hospital notes, he was hospitalized twice. Reading the hospital notes, he was incoherent. Um, he was bizarre. And uh, I also saw him once at home that way, that he was marching up and down his room and he was um, reacting in an excessive way for the provocation. And he was, I felt physically threatening to me at that time. If he had lived, we might have dealt more deeply into it. He had a psychiatrist, he had a psychologist. And while I throw no shade on them at all, because they behaved within the confines of what they were taught and how um, psychologists and doctors learn. But my son, after a, a sui massive suicidal gesture, needed to be escalated to a suicide prevention service, and he wasn't. But I took the advice, I took the lead from the experts because I wasn't the expert in this area. Um, and I also think that at intake, especially with the psychiatrist, you really need to interview the whole family because one of the complications of my son's decline. Uh, my husband and I are still married, but we have lived separately since 2004, but we always get along. We are a family. We have Christmas together. We vacation together with the kids. We've always done that. But he had um, a lot of denial and he had a lot of resistance around medication. And my son wasn't given the necessary medication that was prescribed. Was He was living with his dad at that time. And I really think psychiatrist can't just assume that everybody has the same background and the same attitudes to things or the same understanding. I believe that my husband was in extreme denial. He loved his son so much. His son was the complete center of his world. So he just didn't believe that this was going to happen. Whereas in my heart, I felt at some point it might happen. It was this looming cloud over us all the time yeah I, I would imagine and please correct me if i'm wrong as a parent you're you're looking at yourself like how did i contribute to this what am i doing wrong like there's some guilt and so if i deny that this is even happening then it's not happening and then i'm not on some you know i'm not responsible it's, it's not i'm not there's nothing to be worried about i would imagine there might be some of that happening yeah, possibly. He's not a very introspective person. He's a um, he's from Singapore. He's Chinese, and um, he's a very good person. He was raised by a good Buddhist mother, and he would be helpful and supportive to anyone who needed it. But he just did not have that insight. I think it's interesting that you bring up guilt. I think it's a really important topic. I talk to a lot of other parents and loved ones of people who have died by suicide. At notice I don't ever say come in. Um, and they 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 wrestle with guilt, but I think that's 
to do with the fact that it's a phenomenon that we treat very separately and differently from physical illness. It's a real phenomenon and it's not a relational phenomenon. The fact is somebody with cancer could get worse because they're highly emotionally stressed. Stress feeds in to all diseases. Suicide is a disease. It's not a moral failing. It's not a legal failing. It's a real thing, but it is so scary and misunderstood. And I think a lot of parents uh, feel isolated and shamed. Uh, I feel that I know people who understand a bit better, but I've heard incredible stories. Um, there was one uh, mother, she's in the US, and she wanted her son's diploma to be handed out at graduation. He died just before high school graduation. And the the principal wouldn't allow it. He said, we don't want to encourage suicide. You know, really ignorant attitudes. And I have a friend here in Australia who have lots of uh, suicide, so, you know, parent survivors, I call them, who I've never met, but we have internet relationships. And she's up in Queensland. And she wanted to wear a T-shirt with her daughter Amy's picture and dates on it for an Out of the Shadows Suicide Awareness Walk, which is September 10th. And the local council, we call the city, the council, um, a worker there said she couldn't wear the shirt because it was glorifying suicide. What were some of the ways in which your family, friends, other people responded that helped you to feel supported and loved? And then what were some of the ways where uh, it kind of put a little space or distance between you? And I'm asking this yeah. because I think people come in with great intentions of supporting and loving you, but it's it can be received as like, wow, that wasn't the way to do it. So, you know, because I'm... <laughs> so, yeah, what were some of those ways where you felt loved and supported and was like, wow, I, that's what I needed? And what were some of the ways where you're like, that's not the way to do it? I want to refer everybody just starting out to a YouTube clip with Brené Brown. Brené, it's like Renee with a B, and um, she's quite well-known, and she studies um, empathy and, um, you know, all, all, all of these vulnerable emotions. And she has a great little video of uh, sympathy versus empathy, and I think sympathy is the um, at least at least you have your health, at least you have other children, at least, at least. Um, and that's not helpful. Whereas it's really simple with a person who is in grief that you just connect. You can't correct. You can't correct grief. I think a lot of people think that uh, people in grief are somehow faulty, um, that they've failed and that they need to be educated by the non-bereaved about how to do life. The fact is probably people in grief understand life better than people who've never been in grief. They understand that things end. They understand that life is not fair, the kind of um, fairy tale that we've been sold through Hollywood, that things work out in the end, is not necessarily true. And that grief is something like, I describe it as an amputation. It's not a wound that heals. I live every day without a part of me. And I have to navigate the world without that. And I have um, actually, especially a couple of friends from America, 
Um, uh, another psychologist, a friend of mine, Britta Amundsen in California, who was in regular contact, um, a nurse friend of mine from Australia who is currently living in Bali, she would regularly chime in, and a friend of mine in New York, um, Jane Pincus, and we were on the phone practically every day because she hadn't had suicide loss, but she um, lived in um, a situation where she was taking care of both parents in decline as an only child and um, had been through a fair bit of her life. So she understood what it was like to be down in a hole, you know. Um, and then there's the other phenomenon where people just don't want to talk about it at all. And I remember visiting a cousin shortly afterwards, and this is like maybe three weeks after it happened, and we went to have lunch at his place, and he he didn't even ask how we were. He just talked about everything under the sun except Gregory. And I was, yeah, I was really hurt. How would you have liked him to open up that conversation? Well, to to be able to be um, vulnerable as well. I think people don't want to be vulnerable. Or, my God, what if you you talk to somebody and they cry? That would be the end of the world. And I think a lot of people rationalize it and they say, I didn't want to upset you. And I think that we need to flip that narrative. They just didn't want to upset themselves. And, look, some things are not easy, but if you don't know what to do, I don't know. Everybody these days has a phone. If you want to learn how to book a trip to Alaska or um, how to rewire your house, Google it. If you're confused about grief, Google it. I just think that there's unwillingness to go there because it's, you know, it's hard. It, it certainly is. And, you know, earlier you mentioned he was 25 when yes. he uh, ended his life or, or, and died by suicide. 25 yes. is that age where physiologically the male brain is just like that prefrontal cortex is just getting online. It's, it's like, it's just forming, it's just starting to, to, to click. And so my question is, was there a change in his routine at that time? Because I know people with autism, they love a routine. They love their patterns. Was there, because a, a, I, I know we talked about him not being on his meds, but was there also a change in his routine around that time? And I, I wonder if there was, you know, and I bring up the, the prefrontal cortex just because there's so many people who have ended their lives around 25, especially men. And it's like, yeah. man, your brain was just starting to form so you can think through this. Like, yeah. like give it a... <laughs> Wait. I think I have to give you sort of two sides of that because my son had some cognitive impairment. He might be academically at about seventh or eighth grade. Um, interestingly, on I think on a kind of a spiritual level, sometimes he was like at a genius level. He would say, you know, incredible things. Uh, I think the phenomenon of people, especially males who are at risk in that, you know, that early 20s, it, I think it follows that period of leaving school. And at school, you have routine, you have friends, you have um, certain kind of uh, routines. And at 18, he left school, his friends left school, but they went off to have very different lives. And we were trying to kind of interest him in courses. So this is more like at the junior college level, um, we talked about cooking. We talked about music. He took a music course because he was really, he could sing anything. He could sing jazz. He could sing metal. He, you know, he could sing country. It was amazing. Um, 
But I think even before that, I think he was shutting down. Something inside my son was shutting down. Um, he had a little job. His father found him a job with these um, this firm. They they hire expert witnesses for court, and he, so he just did simple office stuff. And I, I think that my son had pictures in his head of how life should be rather than how life was. And I didn't think that he agreed with how life was. And I think he wanted something different, but he didn't have, he didn't have the, you know, I always say that the difference between my son and myself is I have a, a bit of an FU-ness to my personality. You know, you sure about that? Yeah, you will. We'll see. Whereas he was very beautiful and soft and, and you know, tender. And I don't think that he had that kind of fight. And young men, especially these days, they're going out into a world where they may not get that great job. There's especially, look, in the States, there are people who have master's degrees in engineering who are working in car rental places and driving cabs, you know. Um, they're working way below their capacity. Um, the housing market is incredibly difficult. Uh, a lot of my clients will never be homeowners. You know, it's it's quite a hard world to be in. I think also if you have cognitive impairment and communication and sensory issues, it's almost impossible. And for him, I think in the end, it was impossible. If I could have found a little place for him where he could just camp out and then every night there was a hardcore music and he could sing, um, I think that might have been a happy place. Do you think on some level he felt like a burden to either of you? I mean, I, I think, think a lot about of suicidal people privately feel like they feel there's there's certain correlations with suicide. And they talk about thwarted belongingness, you know, trying to connect and, and not being successful, uh, feeling isolated and feeling feeling like a burden. And I think that's further complicated by having a disability. And while his parents loved and love him, I continue to love him every day. Um, we had internalized ableism and we were ignorant, just like the rest of us. We maybe knew a bit more than a lot of people, but not enough. We're not there yet. I, I really feel that people who have autism and who are suicidal, it's like having tuberculosis before penicillin. We're not there yet. And so the way I have continuing bonds with my son and find and make meaning is to work in suicide prevention. And every week I'm meeting people who are undiagnosed neurodivergent and, you know, they think that they're failing at life. And I ask them a few questions. I don't necessarily diagnose them on the spot, but I just raise the issue. You know, do you, do you find this difficult? Did you have late speech? Do you have particular food preferences? Do you get overwhelmed and just need to like lie flat in your bed for hours sometimes? And they go, yes, 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 yes. And just the the way they can exhale, when we start to talk about that, they're no longer feeling like a failure. They're feeling like there's a pathway to understanding how they are in the world. That's not fixed the world yet. But I was just talking to one young lady yesterday and she goes, I really want to get into advocacy. I really want to get into disability advocacy. This is so important. And so she has a direction for this now. I love that. And how are you today? Jessica, um, taking care of yourself, like what are some of the things that you feel like you need to do on a daily basis 
to show up for others, to be on a podcast, to, you know, manage your, your grief, but all the other emotions that come along with that. Yeah, um, I'm what you call an instrumental griever. So I grieve by learning and doing. That doesn't mean that I don't cry. You know, I'll cry in the car for a little bit. My grief counselor said that I leak. I leak. Um, it's not as something that you get through. It's it's a way of life. Now it's a way of life. And I think that I have to, between my grief and my increasing understanding of my own neurodivergence, I, I need to um, manage my schedule um, and, and guard it. I haven't been doing it that well lately because the um, the recent changes in going into suicide prevention has required me to do a lot of uh, learning new systems. And I worry, you know, because I'm dealing with people who, uh, if I do the wrong thing, may die. So that's a lot of pressure. That's why I don't do five days. I do. I was encouraged to do more. And I said, no, I do two full days of the prevention and the um, the domestic violence stuff. I won't see more, generally won't see more than three clients a day on the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So today I can do something like talk to somebody like you, which is really great and energizing, um, and just slowly do some practical things and see my lovely people who I love to see um, and walk my dog, Adam, who's a minor nightmare. <laughs> That's beautiful. This is a random question because you just mentioned uh, energizing, you know, how energizing it is to speak with me. And it, it made me think about food. Were there any dietary considerations with Gregory? Absolutely. And I think gut health is like a, a big thing that's not understood. You know, I, I try to, you know, early on, try to get him to eat more widely. And again, that knowledge and understanding wasn't there amongst dietitians. And, you know, a lot of people are finding um, uh, there are dietitians that that do this kind of food aversion and food sensitivity workshops, but there are also speech therapists that are working around the concept of eating. So that's very, very interesting. We just weren't there yet. Um, and so I tried to get him to eat different. So I have I have pureed broccoli and put them in fudge brownies. He can spot a vegetable at 20 paces. It just didn't work. Um, he He was the hamburger king. Loved hamburger, you know. Um, he, he we, we eventually got him to eat macaroni and cheese. That was really good. Um, but yeah, he, he. I remember when he was a kid. Um, I'd try and give him something that was a vegetable, and he still had a high voice. <laughs> and I'd say, "How was that, Gregory?" He'd go, "Cause he's funny, you know." He goes, "That was very vegetable-ish. That was very meatish." <laughs> The I, I could tell that you two had a, a deep bond um, that you continue, you know, throughout, you know, and you, you continue to honor through your daily work and, and, the, and this, uh, your daily practice. Also, uh, last two questions, because always imagine. Um, well, actually, before I ask that question, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think uh, needs to be shared with our listeners? Uh, I, I suppose that. I see the phenomenon of suicide, and I think that um, about 41, no, 49,000 people um, died by suicide in the U.S. in 2022. 
We have a smaller number because we have a smaller population. It's about 3,100. But per 100,000, I think the United States has 14 people per 100,000. We have about 12. And why is this happening and the numbers growing? I think people who are suicidal, maybe the canaries in the coal mine, they have that sensitivity. All us parents talk about, you know, our, our kids were gentle souls and they're trying to tell us something. And I think that we have a world that's increasingly focused on our rights rather than our responsibilities. And I think collectively, I see humanity as like we're all different cells of the same body. And, you know, do you want to be a free radical or do you want to be a guard cell? I think that we have to look at our emotional footprint in this world. And it's not just people who are um, involved in the disability world. I think that we need to, as a a, you know, a world community to start to educate ourselves. And I would love to see, and I think that you, I've heard you mention this before as well, um, mental health, relationships, these sorts of things, uh, things about, uh, you know, ableism taught in schools. I would love a mental health curriculum, kindergarten through 12th grade. And, and examine the SAT, that you can't leave school without an SAT that includes mental health. Because everybody has a mind. Everybody has relationships, right? Um, everybody has, uh, uh, you know, mental health problems, if not mental illness at some point. Because how much trigonometry have you done in your life? Right. It's been all relationships and connecting with others and, yes. and connecting with myself. Absolutely. Yes. I'd love to see that. I love that we focus too much on our rights and not enough on our responsibilities. That's such a, a beautiful way of phrasing it. Um, is there, I always imagine, and these are the last two questions, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Jessica? Um, when I was going through Gregory's possessions, I found his tablet and he recorded six times a kind of a speech. And I think this speech was meant to be left behind. It wasn't a suicide note, but it was more, and the, what a generous soul my son is that he did that. Um, and he says, um, hello, everybody. Um, I just need to say something to you that you matter to me. You matter very much. And if you're thinking of doing this, I think meaning suicide, don't do it. I don't care if you've been successful or unsuccessful so far, whether you're rich or poor, but you really matter. You really matter to me. That's it. And so when I sign off my video podcast, Prisoner of the Mind, um, I say that, that if somebody is watching and that they're suffering, um, I believe them. And in the words of my son, I want you to know that you matter. Thank you so much for sharing that. And what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours, Jessica? Oh, um, it sounds really dull. I'm moving boxes into the garage. <laughs> You're sitting in my living room. It's just like you say, one of you know, you, you do one or two things in a day, and I just have some some things where I need that space in between. And I'm going to do it quietly. And um, because when you you have uh, um, some attention deficit, 
you tend to procrastinate and then that pressure builds and that's releasing my own valve, you know, so I'm going to move some boxes, pay some bills, walk the dog again and maybe do yoga tonight. You know, boring is I'm starting to embrace boring things. I, I used to think, that, you know, at the all be skydiving and, you know, poker playing. And and I'm like, no, no, no. Moving boxes into the garage. Uh, I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, it's very zen. Yeah, it's quite Japanese. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jessica, thank you for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling the 988 or any of the international phone numbers, whether you're in France or Sydney or Sri Lanka, wherever you are in the world, whether you're in uh, China, you know, there are numbers you can call, chat, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you.